name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Wow. I was saving my prayer for you for Friday, but... Come on, back. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you this day and the gift of yourself to us in the Mass um, for all the ways you are present. Um, you are absolutely obedient to the Father, um, asked us to follow you, to take seriously our call to obedience, to give our wills to what you're asking, to put our own wills away, and to make ourselves one with you. Strengthen us with your spirit, please, that we can do that. Ask a special blessing. Did, does everybody know that Father Jim is leaving? Father James Flynn, did you all get the news? He's leaving on the uh, Mass on Saturday night. After the, when the Mass is over, he rushed to the podium, and it was clear to me that it wasn't an easy thing for him. Absolutely cheerful, but rushed in a way that he doesn't do and sort of blurted it out. And I know it wasn't an easy thing for him. He's been reassigned to um, Elizabeth Ann Seton, and he will he will start there officially at the 1st of February. So he's in his last two weeks here. So I want to say a special prayer for him. <coughs> for all the many years um, Father Flynn has offered you to us through him, how seriously he takes obedience. He's a soldier. He has a soldier's spirit. He's just tough-minded. And he left the church and came back with a large business experience. He brought it to everything he did outside the church. He is that, I don't know what to call it, humanist. All that you learn outside the church when you're in the world, of the world, and then changed and went to the seminary and has been a priest now for so many years. Um, bless that man. Um, thank you for um, all that you brought him and all that um, all of you that he's given to us. He, he takes it so seriously. He's cheerful. I, I cannot remember in my own experiences a man so cheerful in, in confession. And anybody could go to him without any worries. He just was so completely open. Rare gift. Um, continue to strengthen him. Let him find a welcome um, in his new parish. Give him the courage um, when he has to do hard things. If, if the, I don't know what he'll find there. Um, he made radical changes here. Um, if he has to do that there, give him the courage and help that congregation trust him, even if it asks them to make some changes. Um, continue to um, draw him to you. Um, to grow ever deeper in his love of you. Um, where there are crosses, give him the courage, the humility to enter into them. Always um, to grow closer and closer to you, to continue there, um, the work that he's done here with us. Um, thank you for the gift he's been for all of us here. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I can't be here Friday. That's why I'm here tonight. No, sorry. If we could go back into my prayers for a minute. 
<clears throat> wanted to um, offer a special um, blessing on Debbie and Bruce's son. <clears throat> I didn't know you were going to be here tonight. <clears throat> I was going to save it for Friday. Um, continue to bless him and the turn that he's made. Um, turns are shaky. We make them and fall back. It's so often the nature of conversions. Strengthen him, give him the courage to move ahead steadily, be steadfast, no matter what happens, what he does. Help him not to lose his steadfastness of, of wanting to be with you more than anything. And um, continue um, to bless um, Bruce and Debbie in all that they're receiving. Um, I, this is me. I personally believe that so often people who go through difficulties who have to deal with them publicly, have to come to humility that so many of us don't. And they are gifts to us. And they remind us of something um, we so easily cover up, um, don't come to. So continue to bless all of them, um, particularly Bruce and Debbie, and all that they take away from his struggles. Let it be, all these struggles be a grace to all of them. Now we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you. I think I've told you all this before, um, but maybe I haven't since some newcomers have come into the group. Um, a couple of our sons got called in by a court system when we were halfway through their teenage years and we didn't even know that there was a drinking difficulty, and there was, and um, they got assigned to a rehab program, which was a shock to us. I didn't see it coming, um, but, and one of the things I learned from that, being involved in that program, our sons ran, <laughs> God, I'd still like to hang them for that, but um, we stayed, and it was a truly important, certainly for me, because one of, the, one of the truths I think I took away from like, our experiences there was that we go through life thinking, you know, the kids who are marginalized and people who are having problems, are they're the problems in the world. And I came to realize from our experiences there that um, it's the people who don't believe they've got problems who are the problems. <laughs> you know, I'm, not, I'm, I'm saying that seriously, absolutely seriously. I'm saying it with a straight face. You know, you, you have kids having drug problems, alcohol problems, whatever, whatever the world it is. Um, the, the people in the respectable world think they're the ones that are okay. I mean, they're back in a, we're back in a Jewish world. You know, they're, they're good, they're respectable, they're doing... But we just don't see so often that there's something more going on. And so that was a, just a just a big lightning bolt for me, a sunburst that made me realize that um, so often it's, uh, it's the people who think everything's okay, who want to present themselves as, um, that have problems that, you know, we don't see. And it's the, it's the people who have to deal more directly with problems that make us aware that there's more going on than we often. In that sense, I think it, one of the reasons I love literature you can, I think those of you who've been here cannot not know it, is because it helps us to see ourselves more clearly, that we're not, we're not always 
as good as we think we'd like to be or you know, we'd like people to believe we are. So anyway, I, I, that was a serious prayer. I think you know that. So Okay, um, a quick note. I'm gonna, we're going to do a, a psalm today. It'll be the last psalm we do. I've been reading from the psalms the last couple of weeks. We're going to start T.S. Eliot in the lyric part of what we do in the opening of our classes for a while. Um, because we're doing Dante, and um, I think in all of our minds, we're back in the 1300s when Dante wrote. Um, T.S. Eliot is... It, it, some would argue that he's the greatest poet of the 20th century. And I think that's, that title is deserved. Others would say he's one among many. Um, Yeats, William Yeats, William Butler Yeats, and Wallace Stevens are the two other great poets, and, and Eliot. You can say those three, and Frost will be up there, maybe not with those three, but certainly among the great poets of the 20th century. I would argue that Pelt, there's a good a, a good reason for saying Eliot's at the top of that group. Uh, he had to take on a, a, um, a post-Christian world and, and speak as a Christian without turning people away. Uh, those of you who did the four quartets already have some sense of that. My reason for wanting to do him now is because we're doing Dante, and if you read Eliot's early poetry, you'll see, and er, Eliot's early, earliest poetry, Proofrock and the Wasteland, are landmark poems. Those two works define the beginnings of modernity for lots of people. Other people could, could point to other things, scientific um, discoveries or a war. Or, but in terms of philosophy and literature, those two poems um, are often taken as the beginning of the modern world. And if you read them, you'll see that Eliot's doing something nobody, nobody, nobody in the modern world is doing. Alan Tate, who is a great poet, a great, I think one of the greatest critics of the 20th century, said it wasn't until he read Eliot that he found his own voice. Because when he read it, Eliot's poetry, he realized that the kind of poetry that he was trying to write belonged to an old world. That world had passed away. That to go back to that world is to slip into a world that doesn't apply to our world anymore because we're in a post-Christian world. We, to go back to that world is to sentimentalize our faith. It won't answer, because that's not our world. So the question became, how do you live your faith in a world in which there's no place for that faith anymore? 150 years ago, we were still a Christian world. We're not anymore. To remain a Christian, I mean, the, the temptation is to go back to that world because it's safe. But it's not our world. Tate was frustrated because he kept trying to write a poetry and failing. And then he read Eliot. And it's like his, it was like a, um, a crashing, a door broke open. And suddenly he realized that Eliot was the one who gave him a voice. Now the reason I want to do this is this. Um, I, I'm gonna, we're going to read Eliot for a few weeks and to start our, our, our work together the way we've been doing with the lyric. Um, you're going to hear some, you're not going to understand it. You're going to say, are you kidding? What, what are we doing? But the more you look at it, the more you realize, the more, the more you, for, for people who are open, <laughs> the more you read it, the more you realize there's almost not a line. I'm not kidding. There's almost not a line 
that looks as if it wasn't plagiarized from something in Dante or Shakespeare. It's sort of extraordinary. I mean, it gives plagiarism a completely new ring. Because what Eliot's doing is what I've said every great poet, poet did since Homer. Every great poet, the greatest, carry the past forward and redeem it as they go. They change it according to the circumstances of their own age. Virgil did that with Homer. Shakespeare did it with everybody, you know. So the question is, if, when we're reading Eliot and we find, we say, what in the world is this guy doing? Can we stay with it long enough to see that what he's doing is carrying a past that's become fragmented, um, remote, um, unavailable, unapproachable, we don't even know, it's not even familiar. Can we read it and read it well enough so that we can see he's brought that past forward and given it a voice that expresses us? And by us, I mean confused, lost, looking back. Um, in a modern world where we don't have bearings anymore, um, can, can we see in Eliot a, a spokesman for our age? There's almost nothing he writes except a poem called Ash Wednesday, and I think we'll read that when we get to Easter. There's nothing he's written that is explicitly Christian. Nothing. And so you have to say, what, what in the world is going on? But if you look at it closely enough, you'll see that he couldn't have written what he'd written if he had not been Christian. So he, he's given us a voice. He's, he's taught us how to stand in our world, to hold on to our faith, when nobody, when what we're speaking, nobody else around us can hear or understand. Is that clear? I'm saying this because it's going to get a little bit risky here. You guys, I'm going to ask you to read. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you to read some poetry that's not going to be easy. So anyway, we're going to do some he Eliot. That he's saying something that nobody understands or can hear. Right. And, so, uh, unless that is. Unless I see, you, Mark, you missed my qualification. Unless you're open to it. I tried to be emphatic. What you said. Okay. I understand anyway. I'm not going to be so here's what I, I'm going to start proofrock tonight. I didn't include wasteland because it's a, and, and but I'll, you'll see why. I, I may include it. You'll see why when we go through Dante because well you'll see when we get there. I, we may do wasteland anyway. What I'd like to, what I'm going to ask you to do, even though this is going to be, I'm, I'm not used to giving assignments for you guys, but. What I would like you all to do is take Elliot home, the copies that we gave you, and read them. And, and no going in. I, I'm not expecting anybody to have any clarity or understanding. You're going to read this thing, and I, I won't be surprised if I never see you again. <laughs> but I'd like you to read them and see what you think. Hi, Candy. Okay? Okay, I'm going to read a, a psalm, and then I'm going to read part of Proof Rock. Can we start here? Um, I'm reading a psalm. Let's start. You're, you're not going to have it, so if all of you could just listen closely and not be distracted. Um, <laughs> 
Psalm 69. I told you, Suzanne and I have been going through this. She read this the other night, and I thought you might enjoy it, so I'm going to read this song. Psalm 69. It goes to some of the things that you were talking about um, and some of the things that we've been talking about. And let me just, so that I don't comment, I'm just going to read it and, and let it settle on you. So you, But remember the one thing that I've, that I've said um, again and again in, in our readings of the psalm. David committed adultery. He, he killed a person with premeditation. I mean, you, you can't get more cunning than David did. God loved him. The, the one thing that I'm taking away from my reading of these psalms is no matter what happened with him, no matter what he did, no matter how bad it was, he was absolutely steadfast in his love of God. And he gave us the psalms. Um, so, not a Puritan, not a modern, you know, he loved, he loved God, he committed awful sins, horrible sins. We know from the church, this is our church, we can commit the worst sin in the world, we can kill a person. Um, if we go to confession, and I don't want to treat this lightly because I don't, I don't take it lightly at all, I, I get upset when people do. If we go to confession, our understanding is that if we're serious, if our hearts are truly contrite, Whatever sin we've committed will be forgiven. It, it may ask of us a great, great penance, you know, what, whatever penance we have to take on. But we believe that no matter what we've done, if we're genuinely contrite, we go to God asking for mercy, he will give it. We're going to pick this up again when we get to the theme of the city. But anyway, just hold on to that. One of the things that strikes me about David is he is absolutely stead, unwavering in his love of God, absolutely steadfast. And he knows that God is steadfast in his love of him. That, that trust that he has, to me, is amazing, just amazing. Psalm 69. <clears throat> Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mightier are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. But did I not steal? Must, what I did not steal must I now restore? You know, it's a serious question when I read this, how much people were aware of what he did. I mean, he's surrounded by enemies. He's going to war with his son. His house is in turmoil. Um, um, it's hard to believe that people weren't aware of these wrongs. I'm not sure to what extent. but O oh God, thou knowest my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from thee. Let not those who hope in thee be put to shame through me, O oh Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek thee be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for thy sake that I have borne reproach, that shame has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brethren, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for thy house has consumed me, and the insults of those who insult thee have fallen on me. When I humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. 
But as for me, my prayers to thee, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of thy steadfast love, answer me. With thy faithful help, rescue me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for thy steadfast love is good. According to thy abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to me, redeem me, set me free because of mine enemies. Thou knowest my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to thee. Insults have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is a prelude to the cross. Let their own table before them become a snare. Let their sanctified feast be a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out thy indignation upon them and let thy burning anger overtake them. May there can't be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him who thou hast smitten and him whom thou hast wounded they afflict still more. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from thee. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let thy salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. Let the oppressed see it and be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own that are in bonds. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves therein. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. And his servants shall dwell there and possess it. The children of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Does, does he write something like that, like overnight, or is it took a month? Did he ever say anything? Who knows? I don't know. I don't know. He do, what amazes me is he does it again and again and again. Just he has the soul of a poet for sure. His metaphors are that he does it again. We, when we were reading it last week, we came across a, a psalm that I am convinced was not David. I don't want to look at it right now, but it was so clear. It was so different from all the other psalms. It didn't have the, the depth of sensitivity. It didn't have the metaphors. Um, it didn't have the, the self-awareness that David has. Um, anyway, I don't know. I, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar. Just, um, I, I didn't think they were all written. I mean, 80% were written by David, but yeah. some were written by Saul, yep. and some were written by Moses. Yep. 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 Um, <clears throat> can you take out proof, Rock? I'm just going to read um, the first part of it and stop because it's too long to do t- in one night. 
and we'll pick it up. We'll either complete it next week or we'll break it into three weeks. I'm not sure. We'll just see what we do. Now, um, I'm going to I'm going to let you research the uh, the epigraph, the rubric, the opening quote because it's from Dante, and you can see it's taken from the Inferno, um, Canto 27, and the lines are given there. So you can look it up and see what's said. Eliot would have Eliot knew the Italian, the old Italian. He could have read it, so um, he knew several languages. But but he didn't like what Milton did with language. Eliot always tried to write in an English idiom, an English syntax, an English um, patterns that were um, reflective of our own speech patterns. He takes this from Dante. Um, the the song, now remember, most of the lyrics that we've been reading are lyrics um, expressive of the love of the poet for a beloved. Generally a man for a woman. It can be a man for God, it can be a woman looking back on her childhood, the, the four-year-old, remember, in Supernatural Love, um, loving what happened then um, that took place between her as a four-year-old and her father. So generally speaking, lyrics are about love, or they can be Wordsworth, they can be about nature, the love of nature. Um, but that's generally the context, not always, but generally speaking. Eliot's aware of that. He entitles his poem, The Love Song, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Now, listen even to the name. Quickly, can anybody, anybody want, J. Alfred Prufrock suggests what? No? English Yeah, somebody who's nerdy, a geek, right? I mean, doesn't that sound geeky, sort of, you know, very proper? The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. So the, the title of the poem belongs in the lyric tradition. This is the love song, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. But now as you read, pay close attention to what happens. Prufrock appears to be on the way for an assassination, a meeting with a woman or women, a woman. Um, and as he meditates on the meeting he's to have, we get this reminiscence. So like most lyrics, we're in the the mind of the poet, hearing him express his feelings. Okay, we, that's what lyric poet has, poetry, it's about the inner voice, always. It's what we've experienced in most of the lyrics we've read. But um, read it and then see what you think. Okay, I'm just going to read the opening line. And remember, most lyric poems are in quatrains or sonnets. A sonnet means a song. Um, John Donne, Shakespeare, um, Hopkins, who, whose poems are all about his love of Christ. Okay, so they're all of them have been love poems, and generally in in tight rhyming structures, sonnets or quatrains or whatever the form is. Okay, and now we get now we get this. Okay, let us go then. You and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights, in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. And remember, this is, um, 
It's similar to Dante in one respect. It's, the parallels aren't exact, but remember, Virgil had to come and take Dante and be a guide. Prufrock is inviting us to be a guide, to go along with him. Where's he taking us? What's his end? So Shakespeare's aware of this tradition, Virgil taking Dante or, you know, um, or Eliot. Virgil taking Dante into the, um, into the underworld. Um, Virgil taking Dante into the underworld. Um, Odysseus had to go into the world. Virgil had to go into the underworld, okay? Um, here, Prufrock is inviting the reader to go with him on this journey, this visit. Who do not ask what is it, let us go and make our visit. In the room the women come and go, talking to Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, that fall upon its back, the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea in the room the women come and go, talking to Michelangelo. That refrain is going to be repeated again and again. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare? And do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin, my morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin, they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. For I have known them all, already known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a further room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase, and when I am formulated sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways, and how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight, down with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl, and should I then presume? And how should I begin? And stop oh, there. No, I'm stopping. No, nope. I'd like you all to read it. Read it um, yourselves, and next week we're going to pick it up right here. And we'll either, I, I, I can't remember, we'll either finish it or break it up. But, it, it, and the reason I'm saying that just, um, it's, 
it's it's not an easy poem. It's just not an easy poem, and we could take a, we could take a couple of classes on. It. I'm not going to do that, <coughs> but I want to um, I want to break it up, and I um, I'd like you to read it because that'll help um, if you've already got some sense of it, um, and then try to make some sense of what's going on and why this was such an important poem. Okay, so you guys enjoy it if you can, can, and we'll. And when we do this, we'll do um, um, the Hollow Men and Gerontium. Um, these are these are the ma these are what do you call it when you shoot a cannon shot across the bow? These are the shots across a, really across the bow in the 20th century. This is Eliot doing something absolutely new. The intellectuals loved it. The intellectuals loved it until they found out what it was about. <laughs> And then the intellectual tur word turned on him, but. So was his most famous one, The Hollow Man? No. No, the, 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 the earliest, the most famous early, the most famous earliest ones were um, Proof Rock and The Wasteland. Mm -hmm. Those were the ones that, that, that made the world know something, something different was going on. The, the poems that he wrote at the end of his life, the four quartets, the, everybody who would, who'd finished the literature's <coughs> prophecy, we did the four quartets. I was glad to do them. They're, they, they're probably, along with Proof Rock and the Wasteland, the most famous of Eliot's poems. And they, they're radically, radically. The, the, the four quartets are among the most beautiful, spiritually beautiful in the 20th century. They're just amazing poems. These early poems are really dark, in, infernal. I hate giving it away. I don't want to give anything away. There's an infernal quality to these, so. Okay, let's do Dante. <coughs> I go, uh oh. Oh, God. Does everybody have a copy of Proof Rock? Did no. I think Suzanne. No. I've got, does no. anybody, is anybody missing a copy? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Does everybody else have a copy? Does everybody have a copy? Okay. Very, very, very quickly, last week, um, for review, and I've already gone over these, so we've reviewed them once, but just because I think they're so important, it's, it's worth underscoring them again. Um, the claim that I made last week, and, and you'll see that our work will bear it out, um, Dante, along with Shakespeare, um, was the, 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 the poet of what I would call the great affirmation of the human person. He, he believed that man had a free will and he was absolutely responsible for himself, that he was made in the image of God and what he did mattered. So as we go through the Divine Comedy, we're seeing people who, um, who reveal the nature of the choices they've made in life and the consequences of those choices, that they're real, that what people do matters. And I suggested then that, that if you set Dante against the modern world, particularly somebody like um, Darwin, and most especially Freud. If you set if you set Dante next to Freud, 
you're, you can't help but be amazed at the difference because Freud didn't believe in free will. He believed that all that we did was determine and the source of our determinisms were these, were these animal, these basic animal impulses, what he called polymorphous perverse and the Oedipus complex, that, that those defined our lives. Um, so going back to Dante, we're going back to a Catholic world, a Christian world in which human beings were understood to be free, um, that they had free will, and that their actions mattered, no matter what their parents did. Um, um, we've grown up in a world that encourages us to believe that everything's explained in terms of our parents. By the way, I, I hope it's clear how Jewish that is, Old Testament. Because you know in the Old Testament the typical attitude is if somebody was in a situation it was because of crimes committed before. There was this legalistic quality that, that, that made it easier to blame somebody. Um, Christ took that away. I mean his call was for us to love to a cross. That, if it means going to a cross, that's what we're asked to do. So the world that, we, that we've grown up in is very, very different from Dante's world, just on that one respect. Um, we talked, we've talked um, at length about differences between Dante and Milton, that Milton um, disinherited the past, that he, he, he talked about rewriting narratives, that's you know, so much an aspect of the modern world, rewriting the past. Milton took everything in the past and rewrote it and, and cast over it a, a black, dark color. Um, the, the nature was depraved, the past was depraved, the only answer out of it was Christ. So his view of the Epicure was dark. Um, we don't have a sense that man carries something into, the, into his life from the past comfortably. And remember how important that is. What, what Adam carries forward when he leaves Eden is what? Not only his fall, but what he gets from Raphael and Michael. The basis of the knowledge he carries forward is angelic. There's nothing in the natural order that will help him anymore. Those frames of reference are gone. So the whole natural order has been cut off and blackened. Um, we know from Homer and Virgil and Dante that the past was very important, that, there, that it was a source of great um, riches that there was a lot there for us to learn from. And Dante shows that really clearly in taking Virgil as his guide. I mean, he, he wants to learn from that past. So the difference between the poets couldn't be more, couldn't be greater than they are. Um, we talked about Dante's method, the allegorical method, that remember every event in life has four different levels of meaning, the literal, the allegorical, tropological, the anagogical. That means, that means every, every oh God, that means every moment in our life is full of meaning if we were open to it. Think about supernatural love, that lyric we, we read with the mother looking back you know, at that moment when she was a four-year-old. That moment was full of meaning. How many, how many of us look at events and see that there's something rich there if we were only open to it, that there's more going on? Um, the poets have been, I've been claiming all along, the poets are the ones who help us to see those deeper meanings. That there's something all more going on at every moment. Are we open? Um, we talked about the nature of hell, that um, in hell um, are those people who have chosen to be there. They wanted what they got. Um, what they've got is what they wanted as a matter of justice. 
They've got it. It's exactly what they wanted. They moved from this world into the next, doing what they did. That's what they wanted. So what they're getting is, is what's due to them, what's owed, what's just. Um, remember, David committed a murder. He was an adulterer. Paul committed murders. Both of them are with God. Um, because both of them were contrite. Um, so the, the, the difference, we'll see it when we get there, it's, it's still ahead of us, but the difference between hell and purgatory isn't the absence of sin. Everybody in purgatory has committed a sin. Absolutely everybody. The difference is they're acknowledging their sins. They're, they're happy to take on burdens. My take on purgatory, and we'll get there, is that I really believe we're meant to be living purgatory here, that we're supposed to be doing penance. Christ said repent. We're supposed to be doing penance and being cheerful about it, um, struggling to do that anyway. <coughs> so we've talked about hell, and we saw the levels. Remember, um, Dante began his trip at the foot of the mountain, tries to climb up at his pushback. Virgil says he has to go down. He, he goes through these levels, um, limbo, the lustful, the gluttonous, the avaricious, um, the sullen, the angry, the wrathful, and the heretics. That's where we, that's where we left off. The wood, we actually, we left off in the circle of the violence with the suicides. So the sins that we've been dealing with pretty much up to this point, except the suicides, were all sins of incontinence. When we talked about that, that um, hell is divided into three parts. And all the levels I just mentioned, except the violent part, are sins of incontinence. They're sins of the leopard, light, bouncy, different spots. Um, um, they're sins of weakness. Remember the defining characteristics for, for Aristotle and uh, Cicero were um, incontinence, malice, and faith. <coughs> so when we move from the incontinent to the violent, we're moving from sins of weakness, that is people have to struggle to overcome their weaknesses, that's a sin still, and actively set their wills against somebody. So when we move from the incontinent to the violent, we're moving from wills that are more passive to wills that are more openly aggressive. Once the will, set, once the will experiences pleasure in food or drinking or sex or whatever goes on in the levels of incontinence, they become far more aggressive, far more willful, far more determined in what they do. That's where we left off last week. Now, this week I wanted the two major things that I want to look at this week are Dante as an epic hero and the, the theme of the city. And then I, I want to look at the descent and then we'll, we'll read some passages together. But first these two things. All along, from, <coughs> from the very beginning, when we started with the Iliad, until Milton, in which case we've got a problem because Satan is presented as if he's this hero and we know that he's not. But very, from the very beginning, the epic hero has always been a man who has um, had to step outside of his world in order to answer its, answer its disorders. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Dante himself. Now stop and think about that just for a second. 
in the Iliad, um, the Trojan War has been going on for nine and a half years. Those of you who have done it, remember, those of you if, who haven't done it, just bear with me just for a minute. I'm going to make this quick. The Iliad opens with the war um, having gone on for nine and a half years. And Achilles and his king, Agamemnon, have a quarrel. Um, Agamemnon's being asked to give up some of his booty for ransom, and he won't do it. And Achilles, who's the greatest hero among the Greeks, says, give her up, give up this woman, pay the ransom. And Agamemnon won't and threatens to take Achilles' woman. And Achilles starts to draw his sword, and Athena says, don't do that. Wait, and you'll have your revenge. We, we, will re we will restore your honor, because what's at issue is his honor. By doing that, his king has dishonored him, treated him as if he were nothing. It would be the same way as if we got a job and we got dismissed with no cause. And I, I, that happens. People feel devastated when it happens. You know that. Achilles withdraws from the war, and the Greeks start losing. In the ninth book, um, Agamemnon um, offers him booty to return to the war because the Greeks are losing. They're going to lose the war. He refuses. And it's at that point that he says, I don't want your gifts. I know I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. That he's learned to see that there's an honor that can't be conferred by gifts. Now think about how true that is today because nothing's changed. Really nothing has changed. If, on, if the worth of a person is determined by his gifts, what, what somebody gives him, then it can be taken away. And if they're taken away, What's our dignity? That's still true today. People think their entire dignity depends on the money, the amount of wealth that they have, their home, their car, whatever the material possessions are. Achilles steps outside of that world. Odysseus is on his way back, and um, what we see is Odysseus, in terms of his marriage, he wants to return to his wife, and two other marriages are set against his own, Nestor's marriage and Menelaus's marriage. Both of them are decent marriages, Menelaus and Nestor's, but there's something terribly lacking in both of them. In, in modern terms, we say they're very conventional. They're people living their marriages the way people do. Odysseus, in order to get home, has to, has to deal with all these archetypal forces, the suitor, who, or I mean the um, cyclops, brutal figure, the, the women figures, um, Calypso, Circe, um, the sirens. In order to come home to be reunited with his wife, he's going to have to learn to deal with the archetypal male, which is power, and the archetypal female, which is far more versatile and d diversified. Because unless he does, until he does, he will never be able to come home to be with his wife as another human being. She'll be just one more possession, as women tend to be. And what we learn, by the way, just to keep the balance square here is if the Iliad's a critique of men and the way they use other people as objects and they do, they use men to get ahead and women. Women are the highest objects of honor. The, uh, the Odyssey is a critique of women because what we see is how possessive women can be of men. So Homer's treatment is extensive. I mean, he, he looks at all of us. Odysseus has to step outside of that world. All of his adventures at sea are looking at the metaphysical underpinnings of everything. He has to go deep, deeper than other people are. Aeneas has to do the same thing. His homeland's destroyed. Troy's destroyed. He's, the gods tell him, go found this city, and he takes eight years of failure after failure after failure after failure. 
trying to build a city and failing. So what he, what he brings to Rome is this sense of constant defeat, loss, humiliation. Um, he's not an image of the epic hero that the, the Iliad Odyssey presented. Um, so, so Virgil's image of the hero is very different from Homer's. Each one of those heroes steps outside of his world. In modern terms, we call them anti-heroes. They, they don't define their lives by the same terms with which everybody else defines their lives. I was talking with a woman who, um, in, on Saturday Mass who came out. She just lost her job. And, and she happened to read Faulkner's The, the Snow's Trilogy. Those of you who have done it will enjoy the irony. That those of <laughs> Good for you, Mark. Um, um, it, I can't go through the story because it's a trilogy, but it has to do primarily with this guy named Mink Snopes, who's described as a rat and a just a nasty. He kills somebody he's sent to jail. I love that character. You're gonna what you think? He, to me, he's one of the most remarkable characters in all of fiction. He undergoes a conversion. And God is working with him to get him out of jail to deal with this evil that nobody else in the world can deal with. In the middle book, in, in the middle book called The Town, in the very center of that book, Meeksnow, or Flemsnow, who's the evil guy in this trilogy, sends one of his cousins, a guy named Montgomery Snopes, to help Meek escape and get him caught in order to make sure he stays in jail longer because Flem knows that if Meek gets out, Meek will kill him. In this middle part of the town, we learn that Montgomery Snoke is carrying on this sort of pornography business in this very respectable town. He gets caught, and Gavin Stevens, who is the lawyer and the sheriff, will not do anything about it because they know if they do, it will cast a bad light on the respectable people of Jefferson. And what we learn in that moment is how enabling a respectable world is. Now, we've seen that in every book we've read. The Iliad, this is the way to do things. Achilles steps out of it. The Odyssey, this is the way to do things. Odysseus steps out of it. The Aeneid, this is the way to do things. Found a new home. Aeneas steps out of it. What's Dante doing? He lost Florence. He was put into exile. You know that. He was defeated. He could not return home. That was the condition of his exile. Those of you who've been reading would know that. He's outside of his world, writing as an exile. Not only that, when Virgil comes, Virgil says, you have, to, you have to, there's no choice about this. He doesn't say if you want to do this. He says, do this. Paul went to the third heaven. And Aeneas went into the underground. Dante says, I'm not, I'm not a Paul. I'm not an Aeneas. Uh, Virgil says, stop whining, shut up, and you know. <laughs> Dante has to go into an underworld. Who in Dante's world has done that? Name me another Florentine. Every one of these epic heroes is an anti-hero. He's the basis by which we learn to look more closely at something, at some disorder in their world. That's been true of every epic we've read. Every world has its disorders. And the more one conforms to them, the more one contributes to those disorders. And very often, they do it because they have to make compromises in order to get along, to keep their job, to stay secure. Um, it's a bio situation. It's an enabling situation. Troy gets destroyed. Um, 
So every epic, every epic writer has shown us that there are these disorders among a people. The epic hero is the one who steps outside of that order to, to bring, like a prophet, to bring an understanding to that world that most people don't have. And it's in that sense that every epic has had a prophetic sense to it. I mean, that's, that's the, what we've been seeing all along. So Dante um, belongs to that group. But notice how he's changed the image of the epic hero. Achilles, a warrior. Odysseus, a warrior, but very shrewd. When he goes home, he puts on a mask. It's to disguise himself, to feel things out. Aeneas has to give up his home. He carries his wife and his child as they go along. Um, um, he has to help his son grow into a world that's going to be full of difficulties. So every epic hero's had to step outside of his world. By the way, to go back to Saturday, the, the young woman was almost in tears because she was fired. Was let go of her job, and she said how devastated she was. The interesting thing was, she'd been reading the Snopes trilogy. Talk about coincidence, fortuitous, or she'd been reading the Snopes trilogy. And the week before, she said, "I finally finished the mansion." And when we left church, I said, "I have, a, I have some questions for you. I don't want you to answer them now. Is Mink saved or not? Is he a hero or not? How do you look at him?" I said, "I don't want to answer. Just the next week, she's fired." <laughs> And she came out of the pews and she said, I'm so glad I read the work. I told her how much I loved him and why. And she said, I just felt devastated. I mean, devastated. I felt like I wasn't worth anything. And she put it in satanic terms. She said, it was like, get behind me, Satan. I know I'm worth more than this. I cannot give in to this. I mean, she was so wounded by what happened. And I reminded her of, you know, Achilles and Odysseus and Aeneas and... These are all anti-heroes. You're, you're in a world in which people define themselves by one way. You should not feel bad because you know, you don't, you, you've been cast out of that world. And I, you know, if you were to try to talk with those people about something else, they wouldn't understand it because what they understand is that world in its terms. So, um, so many of the epic heroes we've been dealing with are outcasts. Outcasts. They're on the margins. They don't define themselves by the terms with which everybody else does. There's something a little bit odd. I would think most of us as Catholics would identify with that. <laughs> Who do you talk to if you're a Catholic today? Um, and, you know, if you, um, if, you, if you go to a politician, they're going to call you bigoted because you believe in certain things. Um, so I'm assuming we all know that feeling of what it means to stand a little bit outside of the world. Um, so Dante's giving us a new image. Achilles a hero, Odysseus a hero, Aeneas a hero. They're men of arms. They do their battle with arms, swords, fighting. Beowulf, it, it's actually interesting. Mary was talking about Beowulf and I didn't, what I talked about doing it and I'm not sure that we will, but Beowulf's a transitional hero. He does not deal with arms the way other epic heroes do. He's in a transition. Dante's arms is learning. St. Thomas, Virgil, the past, his knowledge, his ability to see things, and um, to so respond to those things that they help him to change who he is. The issue, the battle that's at stake here, 
It's not a battle of arms. It's a battle of learning. What he's showing is what's the most important thing to our, us as humans is to learn and to, and to be willing to change. Yeah? Um, <laughs> he passes out over and over and over again. Virgil has to pick him up and tur physically turn him around. When he crosses the stick, he's unconscious. After he meets Francesca, he faints again. You know, in, in a matter of one level, he's passed out twice. And it's, it's almost impossible for him to see suffering without crumbling into pity. I mean, we've seen that again. He's got to learn to get that under control. So we're watching an epic hero who, whose principal attribute is learning and to correct himself. To, to stop doing, to, to learn to order his mind and his emotions. That the greatest task facing him is to learn to order his emotions and his mind, to see things as they are, and to bring his emotions into conformity what he should be feeling with respect to everything. And you know how hard that is because so often people think their emotions are arbiters, that they determine what we should do, because, but our emotions are so often unreliable. Often. The real test is learning to, to order our emotions. And how do we know? Because Christ has shown us how. The cross, learning. I mean, so Dante's bringing all of these qualities into his epic journey. So the epic journey we're going on right now is like Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, but radically different. And it's, and it's radically different from what Milton did with his. Okay? Let me stop now just for a second. I want to look at the city as a theme because it's major here. But any, any questions about this or comments or I was enjoying this the other day. I can't remember what it was. I, I, um, you know that for most of my life I spent my life working with younger kids and as a part of my life and um, one of the great consolations of my age is working with you guys. I'm not kidding. I hope, no, I'm not kidding. I mean, on a, what, is there a better way to go to our end than to learn to see things in a new way? Honestly, I mean, isn't that a, isn't that a wonderful thing? Um, I'm not saying that for myself, I'm just saying what a, that any of us could go to our, our grave when most people think learning is over which to me is one of the, I, I, even, even anybody, I mean, I can't, that, that so bothers me. I, I can't imagine any of us not wanting to continue learning until um, there's a ton of dirt over us. But isn't that nice? I mean, here you are learning, um, which is another way of saying, I don't know, it's not too late ever. <laughs> Never too late. I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how you want to look at that, but, but I think, what, a, what an extraordinary thing, no? Yes. I hope. Oh, right. Definitely. I hope. Yes. Otherwise, why are you here? <laughs> um, <laughs> what? I'm so glad to see you because when you're not, I'm aware when you're not here. So when you are here, I'm always. Except I don't know what you're doing back there. <laughs> <laughs> Gita, you want to be careful of the two people to your left, both of them. Both of them. Okay, the city. 
really important theme. Um, we tend to think of the city in materialistic terms. I don't know what, a, what, is the, what other word is there? Remember when we were doing Go Down Moses and Gavin Road to the city boundaries, remember, with the publisher? Molly had asked that they publish the whole story in the newspaper, and both of them were shocked. It was the city limits, because that defined Gavin's world. Gavin's a lawyer. Like so many men, he, has, he lives with these structures in his head too rigidly. He's a good, good man, really good man. But symbolically, it, 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 it expresses something about him, just like the contrapassos do in, our, in Dante. We tend to think it's the city in terms of that. Boundaries are important, absolutely. Where people undermine boundaries, we've got problems everywhere, everywhere always. The, um, the archetype city is the New Jerusalem. Hmm? That's our end. Revelation is very thorough in its description of the new Jerusalem, the new city. That's our end. So the, the city can be seen in temporal terms, in mechanical or material terms. But actually, it's a, it, in the truest sense, it's an image of something <coughs> infinite and life-giving. Because in Revelation, we know that city goes on. It's, it is. It doesn't have, there's nothing in it decaying in the way that our world does. And at the center of it is a Lord. Christ is our Lord. Um, we call him Christ the King. And um, we struggle to obey him, to do his will, and with the hopes of becoming a citizen in his kingdom. That will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that there's a way of being. And we're, we're asked to pray for that, to so that what we do here reflects that kingdom. So the nature of the city is um, communal, self-giving, self-receiving. There's a mutual sharing of being one with another. We know that from our works. The ultimate source of that is the Trinity. Yeah, That each of the persons of the Trinity, the two characteristics that mark God as we know them are his his um, mind and his will. He knows and he loves. We're made in his image. We know that we know and we love. Those are the two faculties that define us. And those are the two faculties we associate with God. God knows. His laws are a product of his knowing. Yeah. His love was expressed in creation. He, he, didn't, he did not make creation the way Milton's got it out of spite. He made it as a free act of love. When Christ came here to redeem us, he said his last commandment was, I give you a new commandment. Love each other as I did, which means freely. To freely love another, whatever the cost. I mean, you, I'm trusting that we all know how hard that is. But the model for the city is what takes place between the persons of the Trinity, the intimacies between them. Is there anything any one of them doesn't know about the others? No, because they're indwelling, right? They perfectly carry. So they're absolutely one with each other, even if they're distinct. But they know each other, they love. They offer the love, they receive it. We're made in his image. We're meant to reflect that Trinitarian quality. Next week I'll talk about the Trinitarian structures of the 
the, the Divine Comedy because it's important, but that's ahead of us. So, so we know that the very nature of the city is Trinitarian. It has as its leaders, as its God, its Lord God, and that we are his creatures. Um, we've got that in scripture. So um, the earthly city is not just um, a manufactured, fabricated thing. It's not an artificial thing. Ultimately, it has its roots in a transcendent order. And if we're following God, we sh the, the city should be constructed, constructed in, in, in such a way that it conforms with nature, what's natural, it's organic. If we're doing something against nature, it will show in our city. That was Plato's great argument in the, in the Republic. If we have a certain soul and political regimes do not take account of that nature of the soul, those regimes will do something destructive of the human soul. Totalitarian regimes do that. The city should reflect our nature. What we do with each other should reflect our nature. <coughs> something natural to us. Yes? Um, to go back, those of you who've been here for a while will know that. Remember that the, the first city appears in Genesis. And it's interesting, it says a lot about the city. Remember, after Cain killed Abel, God exiled him. And he put a mark on him to ensure that, this is really interesting. I mean, this shows God's mercy. Cain just killed. God didn't punish him and kill him. He sent him out, but in such a way that nobody would do him harm. Put that mark and said, nobody's going to harm this man. Amazing God, amazing God. And you know that Cain leaves and his son, Enoch, is the founder of the first city. So the city comes into existence when man goes into exile from God. The city is man's attempt to live without God, to be self-sufficient, sufficient on his own, to not need God. So the city has always been, in all of literature, paradoxical. It always shows the very greatest things of man. We can accomplish these extraordinary things. But it also shows the worst parts of us, too. So the city has this paradoxical nature here. <clears throat> now, in Dante, when we get to the city of Dis, what we're shown is a parody of the divine city. Who's on the walls when Dante and Virgil approach? The Medusa with the three furies. Remember we read the names last week. It's a parody of the Trinity. How could it be otherwise? If it's turned away from God, you'd expect the exact reverse of God. And what's at the center of it? Medusa. Remember we talked about it. To look on evil is to turn... The, 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 the danger is to look... The danger of looking on evil directly is to fall into despair. Because once you see it as it is, it's so hideous that we lose hope. The greatest sin for Dante, I think it's the greatest sin for St. Thomas when he talks, that, that one that where Christ says, you, the one unforgivable sin, he talks about it once in the scripture, I think it's despair. I'm not sure, but it's because it means that you, you let your sins become so important to you that you lose your trust in God. Because we're taught, it doesn't matter how bad our sins are. It doesn't matter. We still trust in him because if we don't, we despair. 
Despair mean despair, French, without hope. So to look on evil is to tempt ourselves into despair. That's one of the reasons I've been enjoying David, you know, the way I've been talking about him, because he's committed these awful sins. He is absolutely stepping. He is not going to turn away from God, no matter what he does. We all know that when we go to confession, usually sometime afterwards we're committing the same sins, even if we don't want to. Um, One of the temptations is to fall into despair. We're asked not to do that, to never never stop trusting in God, to turn to him for his mercy. So at the center of the city of Dis is a parody of the Trinity and a temptation towards despair, to turn from him. (coughs) So the city that, that defines hell is the city that has turned itself away from God and that men have chosen in place of him. So what we have in the inferno, in hell, is a place of justice. That's what they wanted. They didn't want God. That's what they've got. The purgatory, that's all going to be turned around. The people are, the, nobody in purgatory is without sin. They have the same exact sins, but they're repenting for them. They're learning to put them away. Now just take a look. I, I want to just show you these, um, some of these lines. Turn to page 52. These are just some of the images of the city that I, I just I want to call your attention to them because the good, there's a good likelihood you would have read them and not given them much thought. But. Middle of page 52, O Tuscan walking through our flaming city. So hell is called the flaming city. The flaming city. 59. Top of page 59. Why are they too not punished here inside the city of flames if they have earned God's wrath? Now, interesting because Virgil and Dante have just sat down for a few minutes um, to, to clear their noses of the stench. But neither one of them wants to waste time. They're, they're both very, very careful of time. To make use of the time, Dante wants to ask Virgil why the people in continence were not in the city. We asked that question last week. Here he gives the answer. Um, Why do you let your thoughts stray from the path they're accustomed to? Or have I missed the point you have in mind? Have you forgotten how your ethics reads, those terms it explicates in such detail, the three conditions that the heavens hate, incontinence, malice, bestiality? Do you not remember how incontinence offends God least and merits the least blame? If you will reconsider well this doctrine and then recall to mind whose those souls were suffering pain above outside the walls, you will see clearly why they're separated from those malicious ones inside. So, you've got incontinence, malice, and fraud. Incontinence are those sins that humans commit out of weakness. Um, malice are those sins that, that um, involve a will to hurt somebody and fraud involves the intellect people wanting to use their minds actively to commit a sin 
Um, we could go turn to page 63. I'm just going to quickly look at some. <clears throat> Virgil's looking and Dante's looking around at what they see. Oh, blind, this is about line 50. Oh, blind cupidity and insane wrath spurring us on through our short life on earth um, to steep us then forever in such misery. Over and over and over again, Dante keeps getting these observations about Florence, the earthly city. And the descriptions of it are always envy, pride, wrath. People wanting to get ahead, using other people to step on them to advance their own interests. Again and again and again. Um, turn to page 81. I'm just going to quickly... Um, if I had not died just when I did, I would have cheered you on in all your work. He's talking to, I think this is Brunetto, who was his, one of his teachers, um, who was a great example to Dante, but he ends up in hell. But that ungrateful and malignant race which descended from the Fiosole, Fiosole of old and still have rock and mountain in their blood will become for your good deeds your enemy, and right they are, among the bitter berries. There's no fit place for the sweet fig to bloom. He's giving him a prophecy. Dante will be exiled. His battles will go on. Um, page 84. They see some souls, and um, Dante describes them this way. They were coming toward us, shouting with one voice, Oh, you there, stop. From the clothes that you wear, you seem to be a man from our perverted city, they say of Dante. Ah, the wounds I saw covering their limbs, some old, some freshly branded, branded by the flames. Even now, when I think back to them, I grieve. Their shouts caught the attention of my guide, and then he turned to face me, saying, Wait, for these are shades that merit your respect. We're going to see that in a minute that so many of the shades give every appearance of being well-educated and well-dressed. Um, Dante will say that again. It's what's interesting to me. We're in the level of violence. Just remember that. We're here. What distinguishes almost all the people in this level is that they're all well-educated. They're prominent men. They're the most important men in the city. Educated. They're like Francisco. Remember the very outset? Beautiful, educated, articulate. Very well educated, well, well positioned in their world, but here they are. So over and over and over again, we're getting a look at this world outside of it. And we're seeing that things are not the way they seem, as they seem inside. You Did normally you? don't think of violence that way. Mm-mm, mm-mm, right. I mean, you're talking about I'm thinking... Nobody's getting shot or something. You're right. Mm -hmm. exactly. I had the same thought. Exactly the same thought. Remember the one difference is when they get to the first level in the burning blood, where sins against one neighbors, then you know because they're in burning blood. But on the, on the sand and the burning sand and the, the, level, the wood of suicide, well, Pierre killed himself. But, but at the burning sands and with these various groups we have here, um, there's, we don't see acts of violence. They're all well-educated, articulate, um, men. Mm. Um. Mm -mm. 
God bless. There was a line here, and <laughs> I've missed it again now. Um, I have to find it. There's a line in which Eliot actually uses the line wasteland. The, the prominent characteristic of this, the level of the violet, when Dante passes outside of the Wood of Suicides and the River Blood, if you look at all three of those levels, the sins against neighbors, the sins against oneself, and the sins against God, the one thing that characterizes all those levels is their sterility. You can say this is, this is the sterile city. It's another image of the parody of the New Jerusalem. That this is a city that can't reproduce itself. There's no life. It's dying. It's just in a state of constant death. Page 74. The grieving forest made a wreath around it as the sad river of blood enclosed the woods. We stopped right there, right at the borderline. This wasteland was a dry expanse of sand, thick burning sand, no different from the kind that Cato's feet packed down any other time. This is Dante's image of the modern wasteland. It's the sterile city. Remember the, the poem I told you that Eliot, the proof rock and the poem called The Wasteland. He got that from Dante. Imagine a major poem, the, the, probably the major poem of the 20th century, hitting the, the literature, the intellectual class, called The Wasteland. In The Wasteland, he's showing us the modern world, exactly the way Dante is. Say? <laughs> Say? So his wasteland poem implied that they were all going to hell? Or I think what he's saying is that the modern wasteland <laughs> is, like Dante's Florence, is an infernal city. I've been saying that for the last couple of years anyway, that if you look at the world from outside of time, it's, it's not a... Who was it? Who? who Pope Pius said that... Um, um, a culture of death called all the modern philosophies. If you take a look at the modern philosophies by which people live today, I mean, they're, they're just horrible to look. I mean, when you, see the, when you see them lived out in people's lives, he called, he called our culture, Western culture, a culture of death. I believe that. I mean, you may disagree with me, but I believe it. And what we get from these poets, this is Dante looking at Florence. He's not making things up. What he's doing is unmasking it. What he's doing is taking the mask off and showing this is, this is what's going on. By the way, just so you <laughs> I told Suzanne the middle of the afternoon when I was trying to put my notes together, I've been sort of laughing at you guys because I, you know, I kid about it and say, in graduate school when we were reading, I remember the good friend saying he was frightened. I told you this story. And, and I asked him why, because he said he really believed that some of his relatives, close relatives, would not make it outside of hell. There are times when I've gotten really nervous. I haven't done Dante in a long time, and, and I'm so used to it. Today, I was nervous. I was nervous. And I was going through the, the lower sins of the violence and into the beginning sins of fraud, flattery, and God, I mean, it's just, you know, you, they can be small and subtle things that we do inside, you know, um, that we just pass off. Dante's not letting us pass anything off. <laughs> um, 
it seems to me it's, it, if we're not, I've said this before, if we're not reading this and identifying with everybody, we're not reading it well. I got a little bit shaky today. Maybe you can tell. Okay, one, one more, and then I'll, I'm going to do some readings here. Before we do, we've been talking about the descent. The descent. The Dante's epic journey in its initial stage, the first third, is a descent. We, we cannot ignore that. Let me read a couple things that I've... The Commedia is a work of art possessing an extraordinary unity, even in spite of the great variety of settings that characterize its surface. Each of the scenes marking the various stages of Dante's journey is distinct in atmosphere, feel, activity, even meaning. Yet beneath the extraordinary diversity of these settings is a consistent principle. At every stage, the shift from one kind of atmosphere to another marks a spiritual advance all in the same direction. Down. Um, Dante keeps leaving sin behind. This is the extraordinary thing. Remember this. I mean, this is part of the courage. I, Dante's not encouraging us to sin. He's saying, take a look and move on. But he, he can't do it without faith. Remember one of the principles that I went over last week. How do we change ourselves if we can't see ourselves? Fundamental to any repentance is we've got to learn to see ourselves better than we do. We need help. Um, Dante keeps leaving sin behind, confronting it, learning from it, and then ordering his mind and emotions, his will, accordingly. Nothing is repeated. Everything is new. And this is because Dante is the consummate artist in rendering the slightest variation in the sins that distinguish one sinner from another and in rendering the motion of sin itself. What he's showing us in his descent is, is the real nature of sin. That what starts out innocently never ends innocently. Whether we face it or not. What's at the center of our soul. Here, I'm going to put this bodily. I've never put this bodily, but I'm going to say, what's at the center of our soul? Maybe we'll be surprised if there's an exit. What's at the center of our soul is this lawlessness. We want to have our way. We want to have our way. It's, it's, it's um, Frodo's ring, the fellowship. Remember the power that... That ring symbolizes the desire for autonomy. Put it on, you can do whatever you want. That's the nature of that ring. That's why everybody wants it. For, they, remember, they have a variety of reasons for wanting it. We, we want to be autonomous. Milton's argument, what, is, what was Satan's argument? He wanted to believe that he created himself. He didn't, he didn't want to have to serve. At the center of every one of our souls, from the fall, because look, stop and think about it. This shouldn't be a shock. We disobeyed God. What in the world does that mean? We disobeyed God. That's at the center of our soul. The, the, the illustration, the, the, the revelation of what that means, thousands of years later, or, yeah, we put God on a cross and killed him. I mean, I can't put it more starkly. Not millions of sins will ever make up for that one sin. All the sins committed in the world will never equal what we did putting Christ on that cross. So at the center of our soul, you may disagree, but I'm trying to put this as strongly. 
I hope I'm getting you all into confession. Maybe my father won't be mad at me for doing this. Um, at the center of our soul is this lawlessness. We don't want to obey. We want to have our will. We want to do what we want. What did Christ do? Obeyed, absolutely. The, the, the trial at the end of his life was a travesty. Yeah, he didn't say anything. He was the most innocent man ever lived. He said absolutely nothing. Why? For us. So, um, at the center of this descent, it's not, oh, I do those things, but I don't do these. What we're seeing is, at the root of these is this pride. I want to do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me. Okay. Um, Notice how completely realized is every scene in accord with our senses, color, smell, feel, sounds, visual activities present to our eyes. Dante does all he can to make us feel that hell is not an imaginary place, but a place as real as our own <laughs> bedrooms, kitchens, backyards. As we read it, it's imperative to be aware of a number of important things. The one that I want to focus on here is the descent. Okay. Remember, I've been, I've been pressing on you this idea that the contrapasso of every level is an exact image of the sin itself and its own retribution. You want it, you've got it. It'll be a punishment. When we give in to drinking too much, eating too much, lust, fraud, lie, whatever it will be, when we do that, we want that thing. We make that good greater than God, greater than what we want. We, it can be a weakness, it can be fraud. We want that thing. So, but having that thing, because our emotions are disordered, it will, it will serve as a retribution force. The effect of it is what we have. Lust is the winds. Gluttony is the swamps. You know, the, remember the avarice with the two groups pushing each other till they lose their identity. Whatever it happens to be. Is everybody following me? So what he's showing is the nature of sin. And what we're watching is the farther we go, the more we go into the depths, the more the will becomes aggressive and determined. It starts innocently. When you get into the level of violence, the will gets more... It involves the intellect because heresy means another way of, another belief. It means our, our mind is more engaged. In fact, here, Charles Williams once said something. It's, I'm, I'm glad I remembered it. He wrote a book called The Image of Beatrice, which is an extraordinary, just an extraordinary, probably one of the best things written on Dante, if, if you want to you know, follow this up. Um, he said that um, the difference between the incontinent and the violent is that um, belief enters into the sin of violent. And he said, and how, his, his way of putting it was something like this, how is it not true for all of us? Because we can be a Christian and hold all of our beliefs deeply and still commit a sin. So what happens in heresy is the, the mind can already believe something but the mind will work to justify it or excuse it or do whatever the mind does. So what happens here, the shift that takes place is the mind becomes more involved, the will becomes more aggressive, more set on what it wants at the expense of another person. So um, let me look at the descent. If you keep the contrapasses the in mind. 
Remember I said, pay attention to the... It seems like the further down you go, that the normal changes. So the more sins you've committed, they become, in your mind, not as bad. And then your, your view of sin is lessened because you don't really think you've done that bad. That's probably true. Um, the, the, the thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about all of that is remember that Virgil, Dante had to face that principle when he first entered hell. When you enter those gates, remember, you're entering the place in which people have lost the good of the intellect. So at every level, it's, it's simply every level, people don't see what they're doing. That's the irony. That's, what, I mean, that's the great irony of the book. Dante stands outside of it, so we are aware of an incongruity. They're not. They don't see themselves. They, they, they can't reflect on Remember Francisca's first act was to justify herself. If God were my friend, he wouldn't do this to me, and she blames me. So at every level, there's a, a blindness. The intellect is covering it up. But what you do see is the sins get worse and worse and worse. Be, because they involve the intellect, when the intellect is the power of seeing. I mean, it's the one help we can turn to to see ourselves and say, stop, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, so, yes, you know, the, 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 the farther into hell you go, the worse the sins, um, because they're in, they involve a greater uh, betrayal of the mind. <clears throat> I want to look at the guardians very quickly, because remember the guardians at each level. That was, Dante was just not arbitrarily bringing them in from the ancient past, the pagan past, because they're all from um, Odysseus's journey into the underworld, or Aeneas's journey into the underworld. Charon is the boatman who ferries Dante across the Acheron. Because remember, the Acheron is the river into hell in the ancient world. Um, and Dante, remember, passes out. Remember, we've talked about it. He's unconscious. He doesn't see. Charon is called um, a man of years. He has white hairs. God, scary. He's, he's the son of ancient night and Erebus. He's close to the nothingness that precedes creation. Erebus means darkness. His son Charon is associated with the darkness into which the soul moves when it passes from the living to the dead. The description of Charon's eyes as being ringed with flame and glowing coal suggests the inhuman character of the creature and of the sinner when he makes its passage into sin. We're entering into not just darkness, remember whole is the definition of hell, but something close to nothingness, the absence of light, of, um, of existence itself. So Erebus, I mean, Charon is an image of, um, of that, that first Innocent, apparently innocent, seemingly innocent, step into sin. Minos is the guardian of the second cir circle, the lustful. Um, he was the son of Zeus in Europa and the king of Crete. Um, and after ref um, refusing to make a proper sacrifice to the gods, they punished him by having his wife fall in love with a cow. Remember, we talked about this. Um, think about this. This is just, this to me is, is, God, is so amazing. Um, they punished her by having his wife fall in love with a cow. Remember, they had an um, a effigy made of a cow so that she could consummate her love with a bull. So a woman is mating with an animal. 
The offspring of that union is um, the Minotaur, a bull's head, beast's head, and a an an man's body. Now stop and think about that. Um, um, after refusing to make a proper sacrifice to gods, they punished him by having his wife fall in love. Um, she, she didn't get what she wanted. He didn't get what he wanted. Here's an interesting thing. Spite's a very dangerous sin. He didn't get what he wanted and turned on the gods. Neither did she. The answer to spite, not getting what we want, is very often to turn an unnatural love towards something else just to spite. So very often the effect of spite in ourselves is we, we enter into an unnatural love for something else. So this is interesting. And remember Francisca's response to um, Dante when he asked her the question was to blame God for the lust between her and, Franc and Paolo. She finally conceived the Minotaur, that is she directs her love towards something extremely unnatural. Um, he's an image of the accusing, this is Minos, he's a, he could be an image of the accusing conscience or, or even perhaps of self-righteous stern judgment. He wraps his tail around himself to indicate the level of the sinner. It's, he makes a judgment to whatever level they're going to go to. It can also be um, the, the way in which each of us accuses ourselves inwardly when we commit sins. So Minos, Minos is this, the guardian of the lustful, these unnatural desires, and apparently some either self-righteous judgment towards others or towards oneself. So we're moving from um, Charon to Minos. Cerebus, remember, was the three-headed dog. We talked about that. The three heads were not enough. He just couldn't have enough. And um, um, his belly is swollen. Um, Pluto um, was the god of the dead. This is the level of the avaricious. The, um, and remember, when, when Pluto first approaches him, Virgil says something, and the response is he, def he becomes deflated. It's like all the air gets let out of him. So we know that there's nothing real there. It was all an image. The god of wealth, he wanted all this stuff. Um, challenge him, um, and the air goes away, because there's nothing there. Um, Phlegius is the river, the ferryman across the river Styx. Um, he's the son of Ares and a human mother. Phlegius gave birth to a human daughter, and then Apollo fell in love with her. Phlegius, in response, set fire to Apollo's temple. Apollo avenged his act by killing him with his arrows. Once again, it's a, it's a spite. He didn't get what he wanted. Um, he, he turned this, but now it's a much fiercer love. So, I mean, it's just reinforcing what you were saying, Dave. It's... The, the deeper we get into hell, the more violent the will. It, in the opening, it's more passive, it's more quiescent. The lower you get, the, the more you see there's something really violent there in the human soul. Until we finally get to the uh, Medusa and the Furies, um, which are images of, of the horrors of sin itself, exactly how, how grotesque and ugly. And, and I think um, how much they're associated with despair that the, that the, the correlative of that is the, is the human person. Um, 
Um, if, if a human person becomes too preoccupied with his own evil, if he makes that greater than God, he will despair. Turn it, it's, a, it's a power capable of turning the human person into stone. So what, we're, what we see going in the descent that Dante makes, every one of those images, the guardians, is, an imi- is a visual, visible image of the nature of that sin. Grotesque, ugly, um, unreal, close to nothingness, empty. Um, they have a power to do things with the sinners who come there, but, but they themselves are images of that sin in some way. Let me stop. I want to I look at some, some of the reading. I know this is really dark. It's scaring me the more I think about it. Any, any questions? This is dark. <laughs> Whatever, don't quit now. Do not quit now. Don't, do, not, do not leave yourself. Make sure, eat, however hard this is, make sure you see this through. Because in a couple of weeks we'll be in purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> I think I told you this story when, when Suzanne and I were in graduate school and I was doing my doctorate here at UD and I'd never read Dante before or any of the classics. I'd not read the Iliad or the Odyssey until I got here. What a, what a sad comment on education. Anyway, we were reading the Divine Comedy and, and Suzanne was reading it too because I was telling her it was just an extraordinary work. And when she finally got through with hell, she started reading Purgatory. She said, with a big sigh, she said, I'm so, I'm so glad to be back in a world of hope. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Hell is, there's no hope. They have nothing to hope for. They re- rejected it. Implied in all of this is a horrible pride, you know. If you look at it, it's a horrible pride that wanting something so bad and not only not wanting it, but, but being so proud that you don't turn to help. You know, um, because, it, because remember, if, the sin, if the, our original sin was against God, that's the source of all of our sins, then we carry in our soul something really lawless. The only answer to that can be God. Whatever we turn to the world for, it will not answer. This is so deep. So in, in whatever way the world wants to make itself sufficient, remember this first city, the city of Enoch? In whatever way the world wants to make us seem sufficient to ourselves, have a job, have money, don't depend on anybody. Success. Success. That's, that's the American dream. Be self-sufficient. <laughs> that in, from one perspective, it's all an illusion. If we, if we can't... I'm, by the way, I'm not saying jump off a bridge and lose the world because we, we have to live in the world. The question is how, how we live here, what we do in, in the way we live our lives. Um, all of these poets have been showing us there's something in the world we need to be aware of. <coughs> any, any questions? Some reasons? Any? I hadn't, I hadn't, I mean, just listening to myself put this all together, it's shaking me a little bit because I'm realizing how dark it is. Pretty relentless right here. Do you want to take a break for a few minutes? There's an open bottle of wine and there's one unopened. (laughs)
no comments or <laughs> Tracy, did you have something? No. You do, uh, you do, come on. <laughs> Can I ask you a question right now? So Debbie, Debbie, <laughs> Debbie said this on Friday, and I was so grateful to hear it. She said, when she got up from the Friday morning class, she said, I can't remember her exact words, but she said, I'm so glad I'm taking it over because I'm seeing so much more this time than I did. Are you finding that? How? What is that? What's going on? How are you finding it? Well, I'm a visual person, so for me, I'm able to visualize the descent and the, I guess, the contrapasso. Yeah. I'm really working yeah. to visualize those things, and it's easier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I'm a, initially, I'm always a plot reader. I want to know what happens next. Yeah. And I miss all the, stuff, all the rest of it. <laughs> but are, are you finding you're getting more out of it, that the meaning is, that it's deeper than it was for you the first time? It's a hard book. Milton's language is hard. Milton's plot is absolutely simple. Dante's language is so simple, what's going on in his world is so much more complex than in Milton's. There's so much here. Yeah, I'm probably not getting more. I'm just able to see what's going on. I don't don't believe that. I believe you are. I think it's more frightening the second time through. Why? Was that that's it? I think because because you understand you I think first you're reading the okay, this sequentially, what's going on and what's happening. But but when you read it the second time, you sort of know what's coming next. But the way you read it, I think, is different than you read it the first time. Mm. Also, I mean that was two years ago. Mm-hmm. And so we're different people. Yeah. Than yep. we were then. Yep. And our yep. life experience is yep. different. And yep. So yep. how how what I'm reading affects me differently than it did then. Completely I guess very you could differently. Say that you see more of yourself in Yes, you things. do. All I can say is good for the I mean, I'm saying this really honestly, how heroic you are. I mean, no no no, because you know you say People, I think teachers say that, I've said it before, and I know some teachers, literature can be a violent thing. I mean, when you, you, you can, if you're reading something seriously, it can change your life. You, you can say, holy cow. Literature can have that effect. And think about that in religious terms. I mean, it can turn you towards, or I mean, a lot of things can happen. For you guys to be saying what you're saying right now shows a real courage in both of you. Um, truly, I'm saying that with a real sense of pride in the two of you. It's just, um, because it's, it's a scary, if you you look at this and, and, here, let me put it, try to imagine hell. Leave Dante out of it. Leave Dante out of it. How well would we be able to imagine it? Try to imagine purgatory. You know, I mean, Dante has so shaped my mind, truly, that, and to me, it's so accurate because that's the real nature of sin as I know it. He's not fabricating anything. He's showing us exactly the way it is. I know that. So when I put that all together, I, my, my response is, how could it be different than that? It's a, that's an awful place. And he's made it all so real. It's not an abstraction in my head. If, if it exists, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be horrible like that. God. <laughs>
about most of the church nowadays, and most of life nowadays, and most of America nowadays focuses on everything's going to be fine. It's going good. To be yeah. Good. Nobody wants to talk about that. Yeah. Bad. Right. It's true. Nobody wants. I mean, everybody. If you you know raise your, everybody in the church raise your hand who thinks they're going to heaven. How many hands do you think you see go up? All of them. Mm-hmm. Now, what's reality? God only knows. Yeah. <laughs> so, nobody, you don't you don't hear fire and brimstone sermons anymore. But this shows you, you, know, you don't this shows you the reality of how you can get there mm-hmm. very easily. You start here, <laughs> and you start here, and you move down here. Did you say decently? No, yeah, easily. 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 Oh, easily. Yeah. But I, I guess I was raised with the, with stories on Fatima and Lords, and especially Fatima. As a child, I was raised on Fatima, and the, those children seeing hell, and they're falling to, the, and they just can't even grasp it. And like Mary's telling him, that's just the first level. I mean, that's just the first level. And then they start asking about their friends. If you read the book about Fatima, they say, oh, our so-and-so died. And he, oh, she's in heaven. And so-and-so died. And, she's in and so-and-so died. This is like a 17-year-old girl. And she goes, she's in purgatory. And she will be until the end days. She will be until the end days. And purgatory is like, that's all suffering. But at least if you make it there, it's good. But I guess I was raised with that. So this is like, well, this doesn't seem as bad as what them children saw. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But if you, I mean, you know what? I mean? If, you, yeah. if you've read the stories of Fatima, you, it's petrifying. What yeah, but if you wow. ever read that story and you ask people what is hell or what does purgatory look like, I think the majority of them couldn't tell you. Well, don't well, well, yeah, I'm just saying, I think people just don't think about that. They, they think of it in a generalization that it's a bad place. But you're not going to get there, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm not going there. Look how easy it is. I, like I said, I was raised from the very beginning that, that you're going to have to work hard to get perked or because look at that, that 17 Well, I, I told Dr. story once when I was a boy, very small, probably five, six years old, when I asked my dad, I said, Dad, why do we go to the church every Sunday? And he just looked at me and said, so you don't rot in hell for eternity, and I get your ass in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, got it. Okay. I, I, I go. <laughs> that was part of Broomstone. I mean, what, what bothered, I mean, what the difficulty I have with that is it's so lacking in concrete I mean, that's an abstraction again. You know, that's your father. Do it. Well, yeah, you can. But to, to live with, a, with an imagined picture and realize that it's real, it's as real as what's before us in our senses now. Here, we, we're late. I want to I close with this. Everybody turn to... <coughs> this is Brunetto. Um, Dante has just seen on page 75 Capanius who defied God. <clears throat> he blasphemed God. And he's still blaspheming. So he's getting exactly what he wanted. This is on page 75. Um, but he goes from there to the, the plain of sands, the burning sands, where he will encounter the sodomites, the homosexuals and those who, who um, misused the goods that they had um, for themselves, basically. I, I'll pick up here when we start. But I, I want you to go to the end. 
Brunetto was Dante's teacher, and Dante's manner with Brunetto was completely respectful on page 88. The two engaged with the same respect that Dante would have showed him in a classroom. Brunetto wrote this, here it is again. Here's this well-educated man, very articulate, top of his class, his field, and he's in hell. And he, he tells Dante if he had lived, he would have been able to complete Dante's own education. It's scary to think what he would have done. I mean, you know. Anyway, he, Dante's surprised to see him here. Here he is. Um, we don't have time for me to go into this, so I'll pick up here when we leave. But I want to do this. Turn to page 83. After the two of them talk, it ends this way. Page 83. Then he turned back and he seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across its field to win the green cloth prize, and he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. T.S. Eliot, who loved Dante, Dante absolutely central. T.S. Eliot made a comment somewhere in one of his writings where he said, he doesn't know what to make of this passage. I think I do, but I'm not sure, but I think I do, and for me, it's one of the scariest passages in the Inferno. Then he turned back, he seemed like one of those who'd run Verona's race across the field to win the green cloth prize, and he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. Remember, they're on burning sand and they have to move quickly, but Brunetto's taking off just exactly the way Dante describes him. What do we learn about hell from this scene and the contrapasso? Anybody? Coming to get on Charon's boat, that they have a desire to be there, and they fall eagerly into the boat. Yeah, good for you to remember. So that. it's a, to me that is some, that's the yeah. same thing. He's yeah. eager to be where he is. What's frightening about this to me, he's carrying on exactly the same way he did in life. Mm -hmm. You're right. The winner of the group, not the last one. He, he it's. Win the green cloth, he, like he's desiring something, wanting to get it, and acting like he was the winner. So he, he has everything he wants. I, sometimes, this terrifies me. I, I think about it sometimes when I'm driving down the road. That it, you know, I, I tend to drive too fast. I'm over the How easy, and if hell is real, and it's an extension of what we do here, if we leave this world and go into the next one, we'd be doing exactly the same thing we're doing here, but stuck in it thinking that's what we want as if nothing's going on. And that's where he will be eternally. Is that clear? That's a terrifying thought to me. Well, it is, because it says you won't change. Yeah. Well, but when you're there, and you don't even, but the, know you don't even know. Right, you don't yeah. see. You don't I mean, you just, that's what you want? Which is maybe like a mercy. Huh? I said it's maybe like a mercy. Mercy? Yeah, so yeah, like, because, if you're going to yeah. be there doing that, at least you don't know. <laughs> so, so all of hell is merciful. All the all the sinners in hell don't have a clue, and they're all suffering. Remember, he's on burning sand and isolated. And anyway, to me, it's it's just a scary scene because for the reason I gave. I mean, if you know, people think they want something so much, and that's there's nothing else for them. That's all they do and that continues in the next life, and that's all they'll be doing? What a horrible, I mean, you won't feel the horror of it unless you believe there's something more you could lose, a joy, the beatitudes, love between exchanges, all the joy of, you know, gone. If that's all you believe there is, that's all you'll do. I mean, what a, 
just a deflating, awful image. It's just a reminder again of what hell is. So, um, I hope I see you guys in church this week. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> right, a lot. A lot. <laughs> Here, before you guys go, 